I really hope that my son was not the only person who leaned over after Becca said, what is love? My son leaned over and said, baby, don't hurt me. So <clears throat> if you don't get that, that's, that's on you. That's not, it's okay. Uh, and if you don't get it, you're probably a better person for it. Um, anyways. Uh, so while we were in Israel uh, towards the end of May, we went to the old city of Jerusalem, and you're just going to see some photos of just kind of walking around the old city, and you, you, a lot of narrow corridors, a lot of narrow streets, a lot of places you can go, a lot of places you can't go, uh, lots of colors, lots of smells, lots of life, lots of, lots of stuff to take in when you are walking around the old city. And so as we were walking around, uh, you typically see this design of a storefront <clears throat> or whatever, a first level, and then you see a second level. And so that's typically most of the design of the way the old city is laid out. And I can remember um, we were on top of the hotel we were staying at during a more intense moment while we were there. It was like things were getting a little heavy and you could tell there was some protest and conflict going on. And the, our hotel like puts the barriers up and everything like that because it's getting a little intense. And so we're standing on top and I'm looking over and this is the entrance. This is the gate that goes right into the old city from across the street from our hotel. And I'm just looking out, and I remember looking out and seeing that second level of, of, uh, of, the, of the buildings and looking at that and going, okay, so Jesus walked with his disciples, and they, they, they found an upper room to hang out in for a really important meal. And not only was the meal really important, but what Jesus would unfold with the disciples during that meal was huge. So if you're reading through John 13, uh, John 13 through 17, you see a very significant announcement that is made through this passage of scripture. Um, and one of these announcements is that of how to change the world, how to change everything. And the beauty of that statement is Jesus did not pull out a whiteboard. He did not show a cool slideshow. He did not show an upbeat video with music and cool swipe transitions. He did not pull statistics to tell everybody how well things or how poor things were going. He sits down with them and he unpacks God's whole plan. Not just a portion of it where, oh, you know what? Humanity screwed it up, so God had to redirect some things and change some things. No, he shares the whole plan. And it fascinates me that it's in this corner of the world that no one is paying attention to. They come, Jesus comes, he is missed, and then he's, he, he returns to the Father, the Spirit comes. It's like this crazy little thing where it's like it seems so insignificant, but the truth is it changes everything. John 13 through 17, takes, Jesus takes time to focus on his disciples. John actually focuses in on the last few hours of Jesus' life. Jesus does not have much time left. And so there are things about this passage that are strangely peaceful. Like if you sit and read John 13 through 17, there's this odd peace about Jesus. Like you know something's coming. Jesus even knows something's coming, but when you sit in this passage, there's this odd calm. It's not like where he's been and the, the conflict with the Pharisees and the chaos and the storms and all the interruptions. There is this odd peace, even though you and I both know where things are heading because we have the whole story. 
But even Jesus knew the whole story. But the strangeness and the quietness of Jesus' time with the disciples is a fascinating description of the coming church age. What Jesus describes between John 13 and John 17 is the power of living in relationship with God, living in relationship with humanity, the way we were made to by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is describing his body in these words. And it's oddly calming to hear these words coming from the maker of our hearts. Some pretty heavy stuff has gone on internally with this group. Jesus has washed their feet, which was impossible to think that a teacher would wash his students' feet, but he did. Someone in their group was going to betray them. This announcement Jesus has just made to them, which in that day and age and in that culture, for that announcement to be made in that situation was shocking. Because that culture, to sit at a table with someone, essentially said, you will never betray me because you have shared the table with me. So when Jesus says, one of you among us is going to betray me, it is not just some little passing thing. The whole group, the air is sucked out of the room because of the shocking statement made. Even when Judas gets up to go and pay, that Judas gets up and Jesus dismisses him, the disciples think he's getting up to go pay, the, pay, pay, pay for the meal. They still aren't clued in to the bigness of that statement. And in the midst of that, in John 13, we read these words, starting in verse 33. Dear children, I will be with you only a little longer. And as I told the Jewish leaders, you'll search for me, but you can't come where I'm going. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. This is exactly what it sounds like. He is saying, if you get busy loving the people sitting next to you in this very space, this is the testing ground. This is where we're able to do this when we're sitting among people who have heard the same command. We should be doing this for each other, with one another, in this space. Jesus is speaking to the disciples saying, the way you guys get along is really going to matter in the big picture. Jesus says that this will also change the lives of those who don't yet know him. Jesus then predicts Peter's denial He shares with the disciples that he didn't come to just kind of point a way to God. He came to be the way to God. He explains that as he's leaving, it's a really good thing that Jesus goes back to the Father. Why? Because the Holy Spirit will come and indwell his people. Where people would have to travel to go and see Jesus, by faith, God would take up residence in their very life. So you can see why Jesus would say, it's good that I go and not hang out. And then in John 15, Jesus leaves us with his final I am statement. John 15, 5, Jesus says, yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Does that say you can do something? Does that say you can do kind of things? It says you can do nothing. What? A large 
statement. Jesus is giving the visual image of dependency. Total and complete. There is no area that is not dependent on him in our lives. Every bit of it connected, the branch attached to the vine, it is given what it needs. It's being supplied all that it needs. That branch produces fruit. Everything to do with dependency. This is not just a cute picture of the Christian life. This is supposed to be the image of all of life. Every human being was made to live in a dependent relationship with God. That's the garden. The garden started with God's plan of you will be dependent upon me. I will provide for you and we will walk together and you will reflect me and you will look like me and you are made in my image. I will be your security. I will be your provider. I will be your protection. I will be your identity. I will be your purpose. I will be everything to you. So Jesus saying this about the vine and the branch is not a change in the game. It's restoring everything that God said was going to be. This dependent life was not fragmented. It is entire. It's complete. It's total on Jesus. What was lost in the garden, Jesus is restoring for you and for me. All of our needs But what we see doesn't look like that. The fall really was a fall. We actually said, you know what? As a branch, I'm gonna go go somewhere else. I'm gonna go plug in somewhere else. And what we've ended up becoming is wilted and dead. On November 10th, 2016, The great philosopher Malachi Garrus said these words. Daddy, Adam and Eve didn't know they were naked in the garden. That's awkward. I pay attention to when I'm naked. (laughs) What was lost in the garden is us only thinking of our nakedness. What began is us choosing and looking at and going, I have to cover myself. I have to figure out how to get everything covered, whether it's provision, protection, security, um, uh, comfort, uh, happiness, joy. I have to figure out how do I cover myself. That is the fall. And the result is wilted and dying and then total spiritual death. The power of Christ's declaration of vine and branch is that of a growing, life-giving, fruit-producing life becoming possible again through the Son. This is not just the plan for the good Christian disciple This is the plan for humanity. And when we say, no, thanks, God, we'll do it our own way. We'll remain in wherever we want to be planted. We'll go do our thing. We're just doing the natural thing. But it's when we see Jesus that everything changes. John 15, starting in verse 9. 
I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love. Just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends since I have told you everything the Father told me. You didn't choose me. I chose you. This is a very important moment in us understanding what it means to remain. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. This is my command, love each other. When my kids were younger, there would be times that I would be out, whether it's grocery shopping or doing something, and when they were really little, I would, I would do this thing, and I'm not sure why I would do it, I would, well, it's probably because my hands were full, but I would be getting stuff out of the car, but I would get the kid out of the car first and set them down next to me in the parking lot, and I would set them right there, and I would start leaning in, and be, don't move. Like, don't move. Like, I'd go, stop, don't move. Because, you know, you're thinking this little kid is going to either run out into the parking lot, get hit by a car, get kidnapped, get eaten by a bear, all the things that you start thinking when you live in Asheville. And so I'm sitting here going, don't, you know, I'm, I'm holding this stuff and I'm don't move, don't move. Like, and there was something about that imagery for me that helped me understand that imaginary force field of freeze, mister, like freeze, stay put. Don't go anywhere. Because I knew that if that kid ran somewhere else, the potential for them finding their end in disaster would increase exponentially. There's something about hearing Jesus' words that say, remain in my love. Not as a restriction, but as a covering. And I wish we understood the difference between the two but that we're covered as we remain in his love. This matters, and, he, and here's the deal. When I, when I say that phrase, remain in my love, it doesn't mean you keep working hard on growing your love for Jesus. Try harder to love Jesus. Show him, prove to him, do all these things that would explain I love you. That's not what he said. He said, remain in my love. And that means to stay put to continue in the enjoyment and possession of Christ's love for us. That is an overwhelming love. When you sit and you understand and you begin to go, I get what it means to remain. Now I know because I can see what I do when I don't remain. You hear, don't run through the parking lot chasing the wind. Truly to remain in Christ's love is to know the love of Christ. And this has everything to do with identity. You may be thinking of the word love, but the truth is we are talking about identity when we speak of this love. Because what do we do 
when we do not feel we are loved, we go find it somewhere else. We chase something else. I need the acceptance. I need the approval. I need you to look at me and say I'm valuable in some way, and I don't care what it is until I find that validation, until I find that word, until I find that, that, that place, I'll keep running. I'm not staying put. Jesus is ultimately saying, when he says, remain in my love, he's saying, know that you're covered. You are covered completely and totally, and there is no other covering but the love of God. Stay put in that. This takes time, daily, hourly, minutely for some of you. Because some of you are so desperate to be loved, you'll chase everything. My prayer this morning is that you will hear the love of Christ calling you to stay put, to repent for the kingdom of God is near, is for us to change the way we think about God and we think about ourselves. It is for us to go, you know what? I don't believe I'm loved. Well, what does the scripture says? You're loved. Repent, turn from believing you're not loved to being loved. Turn from those things about yourself. Well, I'm unlovable. What does the scripture say? You're lovable because I love you. Repent, turn from those thoughts of I am not worth anything. No, Jesus pursued us to bring us to the father. It is not a wasted trip. The beauty of this invitation to remain in his love is this has everything to do with your identity. And this is hard because we live in a day and an age that just shouts identity, 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 and it doesn't find its cue or take its cue from Jesus. This is hard because if you've ever tried to love as Jesus has loved you, it's not easy. Like you get bloody, you get dirty, you get offended, it gets rejected. You pour yourself out and you get nothing in return. You say something and it is not appreciated. You pursue, they run further. This kind of love is impossible without remaining in his love. And it is, it's overwhelming. Our natural tendency is to say, well, that's just impossible. So I guess I'm going to lower my love standard to something more my, my speed. Like I'm not like that guy. So I'm probably pretty good, right? I'm not like Beatrice. Beatrice is literally the worst. I don't, I'm, I'm good. I, I, I use Beatrice because there's so many common names. I don't want anyone to think I'm talking about them and that's probably what would happen. But still, if you're, is there anyone named Beatrice in here? <laughs> awesome. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Um, the other reason we must remain in his love is because, because Jesus defines that love for us. 
Why is this important? It's because we live in a world that tries to redefine love every day. We don't know what that word means. We're so confused by it. I love this taco. I love my wife. Like we, you hear how we use these things and it's just broken. The world says love is love. Let me define love. Love is let me do me. Love is a feeling. Love is an emotion or a tingle. These are very popular statements. Emotion driven, emotion heavy. Like if I'm not feeling it, then I'm probably not in love anymore. If I'm not feeling you, I'm not in love with you anymore. And that's how we roll in the world. This is why it's really important that Jesus defines love for us. He's actually going to speak it and then show it ultimately to the disciples. The question you and I have to ask is, does my love look like Jesus? That's the standard. That's it. No other place. There's no other place to look. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is famously quoted at weddings. And I can't stand that that's the only place we quote that passage. It's so much more than to be terribly, boringly read by a guest scripture reader at a wedding. Have you ever heard how guest scripture readers read the scripture at weddings? It's terrible. It's like... Love is patient, love is kind, love is not jealous, love does not boast. Like, pick someone who can bring it out. Like, pick someone with some joy there, like, to really charge you as a couple if you're using this passage. Don't let your Uncle Don, who, who doesn't public speak or read these words or read ever, do this. This is gigantic. Listen to Paul's words. If, you, if I could speak all the languages of earth and of the angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains, but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable and it keeps no record of being wronged. Like Every scripture reader should stop right there and look at the couple and read it again and read it again and then read it again until everyone's like, yeah, 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 I know we're not supposed to be, you know, we're not supposed to keep record of wrong. No, do you really get that? Because it's how we've been loved in Christ. Like, I don't think you feel the power of your life and the Lord looking at it and going, I have cast your sin as far as from the east is from the west. Do you feel the weight, the glory of that declaration? Then you just pause and you let them feel that. And then you keep reading, it does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. 
Love never gives up. It never loses faith. It always is hopeful and endures through every circumstance. How has he loved us? I just read it to you. And the second part, love as I have loved you. Because when I read these, I don't see myself. I honestly hope you don't see yourself there either because you might have a problem if you're like, I got, that on, I got that on lock. Yeah, I do that all the time. Well, just ask the person you're married to. Ask the person you might have come with. Hey, do I do this? Do you honestly want to hear? I don't know. Should I answer? I don't see myself when I look at this. I go, oh, thank God for Jesus' love. But this is the definition of love. Jesus is the image, and if we're not looking like Jesus, then something is off. We've been loved in that way. How has Jesus loved us? We've run from him, we've ignored him, we've rejected him, we've mocked him, we've embarrassed ourselves, chasing after things on our own, willingly and purposefully choosing to love other things that don't love us in the way Christ has loved us. We can't repay him, we can't make it up to him, we couldn't deserve it, we couldn't earn it, yet we have been loved. That's the gospel. And I don't know what you grew up hearing, maybe that you feel you have to earn something or there's you having to come up with ways to show your love to God, like proving I love you somehow. Jesus said, remain in my love. If you wanna know what love is, you look at Jesus. But Jesus is not just the source of our love, he is the standard. Jesus' commandment to his disciples, love as I have loved you, Listen, John 15, 10. When you obey my commandments, what does it say? You remain in my love. Hmm. Hmm. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love. I think for many of us, we believe somehow remaining in his love is to curl up on a couch with our Bible, our journal, and our cup of coffee. Oh, it's just time for me to remain in his love. <laughs> it's just time for me to get my love of the Lord time remaining in his love. But what Jesus said was we are more likely to experience the love of Christ in our own lives when we are sharing that love with someone else. Oftentimes, people who do not deserve it. Did you know that you are more likely to be remaining in his love when you obey his commands than you are just sitting, reading, journaling, and drinking a cup of coffee and Instagramming about it? Jesus said, when you obey my commands, you remain in my love. Jesus did not say that your Facebook post that defends a political stance will prove to the world, or if you can argue someone under the table, you will prove to the world, or your ability to defend your theological position on 18 or 19 different things will prove to the world. He said, no, by the way we love the people sitting to your left and to your right, just look to your left and to your right. Just look to your left and to your right. I know some of you don't want to because you're like, uh, uh, 
you know, I know you're uncomfortable. And the way you are to love them as I have loved you. Right? Right? Verse 13, there is no greater command, greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friend. If you are my friends, if you, do, if you, you are my friends, if you do what I command, I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends, since I have told you everything the Father told me. I used to read that and go, that's kind of manipulative. You're my friends if you do what I command, but it's not the way it's being said. It's a revealing of a friendship. Something is being revealed when obedience comes out of our lives. A master does not reveal his intentions or plans or purposes to his slave. The master barks the orders, the slave does the task. The bigger truth of this statement is that as we obey his commands, and his command is to love as I have loved you, we actually are remaining in his love. Therefore, we understand Jesus' thoughts, intentions, purposes, and heart, just as friends do. Friends communicate those things to each other. Friends don't bark at each other. Friends give reasoning and thoughts and intentions as we discuss. And Jesus says, you are my friends. The disciples will know this great love as Jesus lays down his life for them on the cross. And as a result of his great love, the disciples will grow in their devotion to him. As we close this morning, I want to ask you to think about this. Jesus said to remain in his love. Then he tells us how by obeying his commands. And what was his command? To love as he has loved us. It's right there. It's all wrapped up. It's this beautiful picture of remaining, staying put, doing what Jesus says. And what did Jesus say? Love as I have loved you. And you're like, but that seems so like, yes, you're supposed to remain. Stay put. Don't move from his love for you. And what will begin to happen is fruit. It's so weird. The result is fruit. Listen to his words. Verse 16. You didn't choose me. I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit. So that the father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. This is not Jesus giving you permission to name drop. Okay. This is not Jesus going, you know what? In Jesus' name, I want that Ferrari. In Jesus' name, I want those shoes. In Jesus' name, I want that job. That is not what this is about. Jesus is saying for when you, that the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. It's whose glory are you living for? Because it's yours? Because if it's yours, he's not sharing that. So there's no manipulating God or twisting his arm just by using Jesus's name. The truth is we will come to the father in Jesus's name because we know the Lord told us to. We come in his name, not our own. This is my command, love each other. The Bible describes three types of fruit. The fruit of the spirit, which Becca quoted, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, an internal fruit. But there's also described in Ephesians 2.10, the fruit of good works that you and I were created before the foundations of the world to take part in. But then people are described as fruit. That's our joy. To know that God is at work in us and through us. And by us taking his word seriously, the world will know that we're his disciples. 
and in essence, show them that they too can know this creator God who made them to be connected to him. How will the world know that they were made to walk in relationship with God? By walking with those who've learned to remain in his love and love as he has loved us. This is not easy, you will get dirty, you will carry extra burdens, you will carry more in your head and your heart than you ever thought possible, but this only means you will be quicker to the cross, and how can that be a bad thing? You will carry the burdens of others as you learn to love this way. There will be sleepless nights, there will be waking up early in the morning, worrying and concerned for those that you're journeying with, but you will take them to the cross and you will go quickly because if you do not, you will begin carrying things you weren't meant to carry. When we love as Jesus loved, it is an opportunity for us to turn to him quicker. As we go to the corners of this room, as we do every week and we share this meal together, it is a meal that is a, a display of how we have been loved. The body of Christ represented in that bread the blood of Christ represented in that cup poured out for the forgiveness of our sin. This love was rooted in a choice, not emotions, not feeling it, not because you've done anything or I've done anything, but because from the creation of the world, God said, I am going to love them with an unending faithful love. He chose, he chose, remain in that love. When your heart is prepared and you're ready, you can go to the corners of the room, take this bread, this juice, be reminded of the love of Christ that you have been invited to remain in. Father, we love you. And I ask that in these few moments that we take, that the evidence of our life would not be that we can argue, post, um, communicate really, really well, but that love, the way you've loved us, would be our mark. Somehow, by your spirit, you'd cause us that power. It's in your name we pray.